वेलकम टू डीप टेक म्यूजिंग स्पॉडकास्ट आई एम योर होस्ट प्रोनोजीत इन टूडेज एपिसोड वी आर गोइंग टू टॉक टू परीक्षित हु इज द हेड ऑफ डेटा साइंस एंड एडवांस एनालिटिक्स एट यूनिवर्स साउथ एशिया वी डिस्कस अबाउट द एफ एम सी जी सेक्टर इन जनरल इट्स अपॉर्चुनिटीज एंड चैलेंजेस एंड हाउ ए आई एम एल इज बींग करेंटली यूज इन दिस सेक्टर परीक्षित ऑल्सो शेड्स लाइट ऑन सम की स्टोन ए आई एम एल प्रोडक्ट्स करेंटली बींग यूज एट यूनिवर and given its scale of operations it's quite interesting to learn about them this episode was hosted on clubhouse on the data and ai club be sure to check out the club and follow them along with the show guests to get to know about the latest work so let's get started hi and welcome everyone again to this discussion on ai ml applications in the fmcg industry as you know we are hosting this on the data and ai club which is the topmost ai and products club on clubhouse in terms of followers feel free to follow if not already and also invite others who you think would benefit from this discussion to join the room by clicking on the plus button at the bottom of the screen so i'd like to start with an overview of the discussion format we are going to have this in a q and a session wherein for the first 15 minutes or so we'll discuss about aml usage in fmcg industry in general and then open up for audience questions post which we'll also dive into understanding more about analytics at unilever for 15 minutes or so and then open up for discussion again okay so with that said let me give a brief intro about myself i am pranojit i am an ai practice head by profession with experience in building ai products across healthcare retail and mlops i'm also the host of deep tech musings podcast wherein we talk to exciting deep tech startups and professionals be sure to check that out links are in my bio With uh, me today is Parikshit, who is the data science and advanced analytics uh, head of Hindustan Unilever and Unilever South Asia. Parikshit, welcome. Can you let us know more about your background and journey in analytics till now? Hi, Pranajit. Hi, everyone. A very good morning and good evening to you, to uh, everyone on the call, uh, based on where you're located. I hope you guys are keeping safe. So about my journey, so basically, I did my graduation in economics from Delhi University. which had a pretty rigorous econometric and advanced calculus curriculum i think that indirectly helped me in building a strong empirical thinking right from my the formative years but as many of you guys are aware of people who have actually studied in india uh, the focus was more on theory rather than on practical applications post my graduation i joined nielsen which is a market research company and i started working with one of the fastest growing fmcg players in india at that point in time that's where i was exposed to the fmcg industry and how it operates for the first time the learning experience was immense i participated in annual brand plans helped the clients in building their annual strategies on pricing distribution new product launches etc for a fresher this was truly a enriching experience working with various different teams across the value chain of the client and this is when i started learning how the industry took data driven decisions from getting an understanding of various different panels of data collection so basically as many of you who are working in the fmcg industry would be aware of there is the retail and the household data which is basically anchored by nielsen and imrb or kantar as you would know globally there is also the, the behavioral and the consumer insights data which is also collected from various different uh, third party agencies like kantar etc and then there is a the media data which again in india it's primarily from mindshare but again a large part of kantar also does this for uh, various different other countries globally and this is where i first got my exposure to analytics as such and how 
all of these data were tied in together by the business in taking business decisions. Obviously, you would not get to know the strategy being on the other side of the table, how senior leadership was taking strategic decisions. But it was very interesting to understand how they were looking at the data and what kind of questions they were asking when they were looking to expand into various different other categories, when they were planning new launches or their distribution strategies, how were the different teams working in tandem and taking those decisions. But as time progressed, I soon it started striking me that a lot more can be done with data. And that's when I started looking into analytics as a domain, as a career option. So at that point in time, I started prepping for a career switch. And I think moving from market research to analytics, it, it is considered a rigorous a leap in today's time if you look at it. But I think the way your thinking gets formed in market research, it forms a very strong base, which actually helps you along the journey. And so after I did my prep and after a fruitful stint in Nielsen, I moved to a company called Fractal Analytics, which was one of the pioneers in the space in India at that point in time and was making a rapid mark on a global scale. And today, as you, as most of you who are in the analytics space would know uh, Fractal as a global player. At Fractal, I think I started discovering my true purpose. The culture of always learning, working with a great set of mentors, and the opportunity to explore many fields was absolutely remarkable. I, see, I still recollect my mind going into overdrive mode, thinking about how to prioritize and organize what to learn next or what to do next. I worked with multiple Fortune 100 companies during my stint across the globe over there. And I also spent a year on site in Singapore. So after my stint in Fractal, I decided to take, the, take a leap of faith. And I joined Unilever back here in India to hone my leadership skills and get some real world exposure on how on ground, how to measure and quantify the on ground impact of analytics and data science. So that's where I am today. Awesome, Parikshit. It's always motivating to learn about career switches because of the nature of their basic demanding and challenging. And I'm sure many listeners would relate to, and it's great to see where you have come in those through those formative experiences. So next, I would like to understand and get into the FMCG industry. So can you highlight how the FMCG industry is structured? What's the value chain like? Who are the major stakeholders? Okay, I'll try to keep it as generic as possible because most of the organizations might be structured in a different way, so I won't get into too sure. much details. So if you look at it, FMCG companies are usually organized by functions. So there is sales, there is marketing, brand management, there is supply chain, there is finance, there is R&D, and then there are the other supporting functions like IT, legal, HR. So there might be some other departments in some other organizations as you might look at it. And together, at least in Unilever, we have a concept of CCPTs, which is country category business teams, which is a, a team formed with representation from all of these different functions, which I just mentioned right now. Because if you want to actually make a proper decision, you need to actually have all of these functions working in sync in order to land a strategy or land a particular job which is being set out for. When it comes to stakeholders, so if I look at it from a stakeholder standpoint, it could be anyone from any of these functions. So if I look at, an, an, uh, look at it from an analytics standpoint, per se, it purely depends on what kind of problem statement you're working with. So let me just take an example. So if you want to build an investment optimization tool, for example, then your key stakeholders would be the brand managers, the category managers, and also the fi their finance partners. Because when it comes to investments, they, these are the guys who actually release the funds for the brands to actually spend. And the brand teams usually take the call on where they would actually want to deploy it. 
So these two teams would need to work in tandem and as an add-on maybe. The demand planners also play a crucial role here because they are the ones who are actually stamping the numbers as to how much actually needs to be produced for the next quarter and when and how your various different levers are going to react to changes is something which they also need to understand in order to build in the proper investments put in place. Hope that answers the question, Pranuji. Yeah, got it. Also, from the perspective of a product flowing through the entire value chain, what do you think is the major primary key players there? And I would assume, like uh, starting from the supply chain side, we have the raw material producers to the uh, production facilities. Then we'll have this logistics providers, distributor, retailers, right? I think in that order. Anything else that comes to mind? So a particular, a typical value chain would look like uh, look something like this. So raw goods are made in the factory. They are moved from the factory to distribution centers. From distribution centers, they are moved to RSs, who are basically our distributors. Um, and in India, uh, per se, there is this middle step as well. And from the distributors, and the goods move to stores. And from stores, it ends up with the consumers, like you and I, who would actually buy the product from stores. So that's how the end-to-end value chain would look like for an FMCG firm. Got it. That gives a good overview of the product as well as the business organization structure. So uh, next, I would like to understand what are the major challenges that you have come across in this industry from business perspective as well as maybe technical perspective? I think the key challenge which we see in the FMCG sector uh, quite primarily, and I think it's it's common with all non-digital first organizations, is the lack of structure, lack of data or structured data, and I don't mean structured uh, in a, like uh, when I say talk about tabular data per se, but having data set in, having ease of access to data is something which is uh, very, very challenging. And let me pull it out. And this is also because of the fact that these companies have been running for hundreds of years, right? So basically, or sometimes some of the IT infrastructure also does not get up-to-dated because people are very used to the comfort which, uh, which it already comes with. So some of the archaic systems, IT systems which are there in place also does not help in getting uh, getting speed to access when it comes to data per se. Now, and also the kind of data which we store. So basically, if you think about it from an FMCG manufacturer's perspective, right? So you would uh, definitely know what you're selling and what uh, all the internal data which is probably there is something which you know is sitting with you. But you have no, inf- you have very limited insights into how the competition is behaving, which is a major factor when it comes to actually selling a product, right? And so for competitive information, you would rely on various different other syndicated databases, Nielsen, Kantar, for example. But again, this data is limited and the granularity of such data is also pretty restricted. So to give you an example, if you look at Nielsen data in India, you probably would get one data point per month and they usually store 36 months of data per se. So basically, three years of data is all Nielsen provides with every run in on a rolling basis. So you don't have day level sales. You don't and and the numbers which you get, they are at a state level or a city level at max when it comes to metros. So basically, the granularity of the data which you're getting, it's also pretty high. It's not as granular as you would uh, like it, or as granular as what uh, Amazon or a Walmart probably has today. Amazon sitting today can even build a forecast right down to a pin code hour level. That's how good their data is because they basically collect every single touch point through their application, right? So when you log into the Amazon app, 
every single click is something which they are able to record and they know your preferences when do you actually log in what kind of products are you actually looking for and they have good folks to even process that much information into actionable insights so data probably is something which is uh, basically one of the major challenges which fmcg industries usually face access to granular and quick data yeah got it uh, do you think this is an uh, india specific problem how the market is structured here vis-a-vis some other developed nations or is it something more deep in india the problem is a bit more severe because of the diversity which exists and it, i think it's a problem which might be common across all developing markets as such if you think about india and the diversity of india is immense how a person in the north behaves versus how a person in in south india behaves is completely opposite if i may put it and that way behavioral patterns the demographic patterns everything is very very different there are cities where you would find people just like living next to each other and the income disparity is mammoth so all of this actually uh, factors into your buying patterns and your uh, personal choices of uh, purchases as well right in and also the channels which are probably there when it comes to your options so you have e-commerce which is growing but the digital penetration or the internet penetration in india is not that great so the major a chunk of sales happens through general trade which is basically the mom and pop stores which you have out here and they are extremely they are, you have various different types of stores out here uh, when it comes to mom and pops and mom and pop stores right. and they are like scattered all over you have millions of such stores so even tracking how they behave is is very difficult versus if you look at a developed country per se going to a costco or a walmart is uh, still easier and they store their data so having access right. to that information is also pretty easy got it so we'll get into the details of how unilever is trying to get over this in the second part of the discussion for now can you highlight some of the interesting use cases that's prevalent in this industry like competitive intelligence is one that you mentioned what are some of the other more prevalent use cases so a couple of use cases which is standard and i think in fmcg in general and i won't get into like and just start off with the broad ones and then we could go into details if needed so two of them which are like very very common and standardized are the forecasting use cases and the triple m use cases so basically the marketing mix modeling so basically these are two various and uh, these are two different use cases which are persistent and common and you would find that across any fmcg industry across uh, the globe and then there are other use cases which come up when it in forms of recommendation engines which can be leveraged in a digital first space in unilever india we have also implemented recommendations in our offline gt channels as well which was a mammoth challenge and then uh, there are the other digital initiatives which can which you can obviously pick up when it comes to countries where it's more digitally native and then obviously nlp has been another very interesting use case which has been coming up in the, over the past years which right. helps us derive insights from all the e-commerce recommendations etc just to identify trends and get some insights on how consumers actually perceive some of our products right uh, voice of customers is uh, was something which was on uh, top of my mind as well i see that also coming up quite well in the industry for quite some time a couple of other use cases that also i have seen uh, nowadays is uh, something related to traceability and location analytics i think uh, you would agree that's also 
quite heavily, I think, or at least coming up quite well in this industry. And the second was maybe particular to our your Indian case is reverse logistics and uh, fraud detection in that. Uh, yes, Pranit, you're absolutely right, uh, spot on. These are the uh, these are some trends which are definitely coming up. But again, more from an India perspective, some of these problems are still about are still not quite there yet because it's still uh, the way we or uh, the way we operate. Some of these problems uh, might be more relevant from a, a digital first perspective. The logistics problem is obviously something which is there. R- route optimization is something which is like which is an ongoing problem, and I think we have made pretty significant progresses over there. But again, in terms of innovation, I don't see too much happening in the space of route optimization. But again, could be wrong there. But like at least in my experience, I haven't seen too much happening in terms of innovation. But it's definitely prevalent. Got it. Uh, I'd like to quickly refresh the room for those who have joined just now or recently. So we are talking with Parikshit, the Unilever Data Science Advanced Analytics Head of South Asia. And then we are discussing about AI ML in FMCG industry. So we're looking to understand more about what goes into the FMCG industry. And then we'll also be discussing about what is happening at Unilever from an analytical perspective. So if you have any questions, we'll be opening up the floor pretty soon. So please raise your hand. You have the, for those who are not aware, we have the hand icon at the bottom of our screen. Please click it and I'll uh, invite you on stage. So uh, Parikshit, before we go to the second part of our discussion, I'd just like to end about having your thoughts about AIML usage in this industry as a whole. And uh, what trends you see or where do you see or some new trends that you see coming, uh, going in the future? Sure. So like I mentioned, uh, Triple M's demand forecasting recommendation engines for, uh, like pretty much form the crux of what's there. With the advent of the digital age, we, a new trends identification. So if you look at how innovation actually plays a role, that's still an unsolved problem, if you ask me. What innovation would actually, you know, if we try to identify what innovation would work versus what would not, and if you look at digital trends per se, which are the trends which would which are actually which actually would become a market in the future versus what would actually fade away as fads. So basically, if I give you an India context per se, so non-gas perfumes uh, for people who are from India, I know you guys are like pretty aware of it, and because that's become the norm out here when it comes to deodorants, non-gas deodorants have had became a rage when a company called Fog. Uh, Gini Cosmetics, actually, who make fog, introduced this new concept in the market. It was more expensive than a traditional deodorant, but it was cheaper than a than a middle ranged mid range perfume, right? So they wanted to bridge the gap between perfumes and deodorants. No one thought that it would actually pick up, but when it released, it absolutely destroyed the markets for Axe, which who were the market leaders at that point in time, and as well as all other deodorant brands as well. Because it was more, it was long-lasting. The perfume was stronger. Given the weather conditions in India, it was it became more relevant out here, and people actually started preferring it because it was it was cheaper than a perfume as well. So that became a monumental shift in the deodorant in the deodorants industry altogether. Now, if you look at major players out here, I think everyone has launched a non-gas variant in their portfolio, in their portfolio mix, and that has become the dominant format over time as well. But if you look at, like, maybe how do I put up? So during the lockdown last year, there was a huge craze around Dalgona coffee. So people and many such companies actually reacted to it because there were some videos which went viral on Instagram and YouTube. People actually started innovating and bringing out a variant of Dalgona coffee out. So again, 
it was very important to identify beforehand to make sure that it was actually a fat and it was not something which would actually become equivalent of a latte or a cappuccino in terms of coffee usage and drinkability right so but and as we saw nalgona did fade out over time people now don't refer to it as much and it's something which is there in the past it's not something which is which is still a prevalent trend in the in the coffee drinking industry right now now and apart from that if you look at some of the hr services which are also there so basically resume processes have become quite a bit of a rage where people where the hr folks don't have to go through all the thousands of uh, resumes in order to pick out the key skills which they are looking for they can build customized resume processes to at least do 60% of the job and then when they also have to shortlist candidates from b schools so in india the format of b schools is pretty straightforward where they actually have they put out a form for all the students which they have to fill up based on their marks etc so it becomes a tabular data a tabular data for them and it's very easy to build a classifier on top of it based on previous experiences to shortlist people for the first and the second round of interviews so automating that process with the machine learning algorithm sitting on top becomes a lot more easier and it saves saves out on hours of manual effort if i may put it that way when it comes to how is the industry changing i'll start off with talking about the current and the similar problems which we were discussing the core of the core which is basically the triple m's and the forecasting forecasting problems which are there and how they have evolved over time before getting into some of the other use cases which might also come up so if you look at forecasting it's been an age old problem and it's one of the most interesting problems if you ask me traditional statistical models started off with arima arima and the likes and it was a univariate problem to solve solve for then with the advent of machine learning it became a multivariate problem people started using uh, algorithms like random forest xgboost to get way better accuracies when it comes to forecasting in a multivariate format and then obviously with the advent of deep learning we know that deep ar lstms etc and gluon have also become state of the art and when there is enough and more data again the key point here is to have enough and more data to actually implement deep learning algorithms similarly so similarly if you look at triple ms um, they started off with linear regression right it was a very very simple format you build a, a log linear regression model you get the elasticities out for some of the key levers and then it proceeds now it has moved um, uh, it has traveled the distance it's moved from linear regression to bayesian to various different bayesian frameworks like the bayesian hierarchical models as such and we also see the movement from generalized outcomes to more specific and action oriented out- outcomes so like um Triple M models usually were built at a national level or at a very very high geographic granularity or at a brand brand level as well. So basically, to tell you that in India, if you take the price down of surf by surf by one percent, so surf so for people outside India, surf is the other name of Omo, which is the laundry detergent. So it's known by the name of surf in India. So basically, if you take the price down of surf by maybe one percent, you would see an uplift of three percent in sales. but that usually doesn't help because in india since the market is so diverse where do you actually take that decision are are all the states going to react in a similar fashion or uh, how will it actually behave and which base packs or which skews should you actually take the price down on should you take them and take a price cut in all of them are they all equally responsive these are all questions which were like very which were generalized on a very very high level right so it was not a very actionable per se the insights were there 
but it was not very actionable now with more and more complex algorithms coming into play it's very easy to like build more granular more granular models and also capture some of the hierarchical components as well so if i may put it that way so pricing if you take a price if you take an action on pricing you would probably see the pricing actions are usually taken at a sq level not at a brand level but when you run a media campaign for tv or an ad etc that is usually done at a brand level so basically how do you bring both of these impacts down to the same level right you can't it's not very easy to bring uh, the media impact down to a base pack level right or a sq level that won't be correct so building a model to cater to some of these all of these complexities is something which is also moving forward right and when i come and then obviously with the advent of deep learning you see we can we have started leveraging a deep learning to draw information out of various unstructured data sources the e-commerce reviews the internet trends etc are one of them twitter reviews obviously is uh, is the perfect use case for nlp then if you look at planogramming for instance and in and even more so in a covid uh, in a covid impacted world where people usually won't have the time to actually go to stores etc to take and uh, to look at uh, look at the planograms uh, the planograms which are there how the products are uh, like um, shelved etc so you usually can use a lot of computer vision models to actually identify which products are stocked where and is it and if it's actually like following the norms which have been set so i think a lot of these things will also uh, come into play and i think one more interesting advent which is actually coming into play now is the d2c the d2c framework which is basically the direct to consumer framework i think it's one of the biggest bets for the future and i think it's even more driven by the pandemic as as you see more and more companies embarking on the digital transformation journey d2c will become a big thing in the future um and also when and again if i talk about technology per se i think auto ml will see more adoption but i still believe it's more of an enabler rather than just an end to end solution in itself i don't think it will ever reach a point where it can do better than a manually tuned model because a lot of human intelligence also goes into it but i think it will be excellent enabler of augmenting human intelligence and another such big bet in the world of technology will be ml ops or machine learning operations because as more and more companies adopt ai in their strategic vision and get the senior management al- aligned on those particular views managing and deploying these solutions will be extremely crucial it cannot be a manual task so so ml ops will be a very big thing of the future i think people have already started talking about it and i think as the years progress it will also keep on growing and for the fmcg uh, sector per se i think enablers like a uh, data lake or data as a platform along with more of cloud adoption will also see more traction as we keep progressing yeah. that was really awesome overview parikshit i must say you really laid out the landscape uh, really well in terms of the various use cases i really appreciate that and personally i also vouch for few of the things like you have mentioned about deep ar being very suited for the kind of data sets that we get in the fmcg industry so that is i see that coming up really well MLOps no doubt is the trend to go in the future and we'll have every organization will need some flavor of MLOps in their toolkit whoever is doing analytics 
and also the hiring aspect which you mentioned so is automating that or assisting the hr in the hiring process is definitely a key but i would love to also like to understand how you go about hiring at unilever and we'll cover that in the next part of the discussion but for now i'd like to first of all say hi to praveen who is on stage praveen is the deputy director at nascom and is doing fantastic things about ai enablement in but thank you for inviting me onto the stage i really appreciate that and i couldn't help but ask and because fmcg sector is pretty huge parikshit i just want to take a few steps back you know not looking at unilever but fmcg as a sector like i was trying to indicate and for those i see this could be a slightly international audience that i see in the room so i represent in this clubhouse nascom and for those who don't know nascom nascom stands for the national association of software and service companies it's a large indian trade association and advocacy group which commands cumulative of if i'm right around 200 billion dollars of revenue across the country and uh, pretty much all it and its companies and bpm firms are members of nascom and it's a pretty huge body uh, there's a lot of work that we do with the government with industry with various stakeholders that are out there now with that context i wanted to you know bring a reference to a work a report which uh, we published together with uh, mckinsey this was last year and uh, what this report highlighted specifically about ai and ml and the potential of ai ml was uh, to the tune of uh, nearly about 450 to 500 billion dollars in terms of its potential for the year 2025 now that's a staggering uh, uh, figure if you were to look at it right and it constitutes nearly about a 10% of the 5 trillion target which uh, india has set for itself pre covid uh, of course these numbers would need re- revisions but uh, that's the significant contribution to the gdp that data and ai is bringing into this and why i'm trying to bring this reference is uh, if you and this is a report that you can access on the nascom website it's free of cost you know for non members as well and any of you i would encourage you to visit the nascom website which is nascom.in and you can get access to it but if you were to look at it specifically the breakup of the 450 to 500 billion dollar potential in 2025 it comprises of broadly 9 8 to 9 sectors and the sector that stands out top is the consumer goods and retail sector commanding nearly about 100 billion dollars of ai potential or data and ai potential you know to the gdp now that is pretty significant right parikshit and pranajit and um, you know what is exciting and interesting is at an industry level and this is something which parikshit i would like you to respond to to the understanding that you have being a very significant member of the fmcg sector as to what is the rate of adoption that you see of ai ml in the sector this is something which we keep thinking about constantly and we are going to do a lot of work in this area together with industry partners trying to assess where does each industry stand in terms of the rate of adoption what are the drivers what are the enablers what are the inhibitors and in that process there will be a lot of learning that will come through and maybe some of those learnings will translate into policy interventions in order for more of such such a ado- more of these initiatives that can happen which can enhance the rate of adoption what's i mean if if, if you were to say 100 is the full potential today as of today 2021 where do you see the fmcg sector stand Uh, it's a long winding question but i felt it's important to lay down that context so that you could respond better thanks for the question praveen pretty interesting point made 
So Praveen, the so if I uh, like the 450 million target which you talked about, it's something which is um, obviously something which is achievable. 100 million attributed to FMCG is also something which I can see happening with more and more adoption coming into place. So to answer your question, probably I'll take Unilever's example and then set the benchmark because it's very difficult to say how the other industries, uh, the how how the other manufacturers are also also picking up on it. So from Hindustan Unilever perspective. The digital transformation journey which we are on is something which is backed directly by Sanjeev Mehta. There is a digital council which is um, which is prevalent within Hindustan Unilever, which Sanjeev Mehta himself chairs. So basically, that I hope gives you confidence on the kind of backing which the digital transformation journey in HUL is currently facing. Now, when it comes to how will that num- how will we reach that number of a hundred million? If you look at it with more and more adoption of, so I'll break it up into two parts. Again, one more from an adoption perspective, and the other more from an embedding or a technology perspective. Okay, so now if I start off with the technology part as such, Unilever as an organization spends millions in its cloud-based subscription costs. So with that movement happening from on-prem infra to the cloud, which basically enables faster access to data, a more streamlined data source, a more streamlined technology platform, basically tells you how much of a confidence the larger management also has in order to put in that kind of money to build the technological setups, like setting up a data as a platform team versus setting up a data lake and then building uh, end-to-end architecture pipelines, etc. Right. So that investment will keep on going up in the future as more and more departments start adopting to it. The data lake becomes a more prominent concept moving across and cloud-based infra becomes a way of life as compared to just something which people might be like experimenting with in any other part of like the industry maybe per se. Right. And the second part is around the adoption. Like I mentioned, there is a digital council which is set up, which Sanjeev Mehta himself chairs, who's the chairman of Hindustan Unilever. It tells you of how much of a focus is actually sitting on embracing technology to enable business better, to enable how do we make this business better. Maybe 10 years before, no one would have actually thought of hiring data scientists in a company like Unilever, right? People would have said that like, we are a sales and marketing company. We usually we don't think we need any data scientists within our within our ranks as such. Now we've come to a point where there are directors in data science, and that's not a very small thing, right? So even in terms of people investment, that's gone up. And if you look at and I can personally vouch for how HUL operates. So there is analytics embedded in each and every function which is there across the board, starting from supply chain. With, if you look at on the, the four different aspects of supply chain, a plan, source, make, deliver. Demand planning uses a ML-based forecasting. Um, sourcing, procurement, we have forecasting solutions built in to predict the quality of crops before um, they are procured. It helps the procurement managers plan better. Sourcing, if you look at make, we have a digital factory setup which is coming into place with IoT devices coming into play. Predictive maintenance becomes a lot more easier right now the pollution impact which is also there that also will come down significantly the carbon footprint if we have a machine-based system guard railing how some of our machines operate if you look at the last mile delivery having forecasting solutions sitting to predict how much a distributor would probably order or 
what kind of recommendations uh, do we actually need to send out to a particular store it's all ml based it's augmenting the, we have machine learning solutions augmenting human intelligence at each and every step and i would feel that this needs to go up even further so basically to answer your question i like i def- i definitely try to speak about or the various different ways i see this investment going up even further in the future and currently the potential which i may probably say that this industry is probably sitting at is probably at 40% if you index it against 100 but yeah tremendous room for improvement but there is definitely progress which is happening to get to that particular mark which you mentioned i hope i managed to answer that question partly yes but i mean i won't blame you because uh, it's something which we as an industry don't have an accurate sense of an exercise of this kind hasn't been conducted and the endeavor would be to do something of that nature so that we precisely know where each industry sector stands in terms of its current rate of adoption and if we were as a country to achieve the specific sector specific goal by 2025 are we on the right trajectory and there could be several categories in which we can assess whether the rate of adoption is uh, is progressing well or not and it could be like the way you indicated the right kind of people the right kind of skill set uh, being brought in and uh, what is the constitution constitution of the people the human resources that are specific to this i mean it's a very crude way of saying it could be investments it could be the number of use cases that the industry at large has been adopting you know while looking at ai and ml and there could be several such criteria and uh, potentially we'll have to look at a weighted average you know scoring for each industry sector and uh, put us put an index of sorts right so we know 2021 was the score and when we do this exercise year on year 22 23 and so on we will be in a position to assess how that particular index factor has improved or deteriorated and this improvement or this change of this factor could be across these categories and the way i see it and this is my personal opinion is that there will definitely be opportunities to identify policy interventions in specific criteria maybe there are ai use cases that are not being adopted well maybe is it because the industry is largely hesitant you know to look at newer ways of solving problems you know there could be many ways in which this can be looked at but again it's very helpful to know what unilever is doing and i thank you for that response and pranajit if you allow me for a minute i just want to talk about my experience working with unilever if that's okay sure sure pravin before that i would just like to add one point to your question and i think what you outlaid uh, sounds quite good and i am sure industry participants like parikshit and others would be more than willing to sit across and uh, have more thoughts about it i just want to highlight one aspect from my experience with a national level consumer goods player and uh, this echoes back to what parikshit said in the beginning that data acquisition is one of the major hurdles in uh, driving forward an analytics roi at some of these major uh, organizations so that is something which if uh, crossed can propel the adoption in these organizations and there are quite a few startups i think who are working on that and uh, as well as uh, the organizations itself are looking into that so just wanted to add that please go ahead Yep. and also one more thing to add maybe praveen it's more from when it comes to adoption like you currently mentioned i believe that resistance against having machine learning augment human intelligence in a traditional setup in like fmcg would be there and i think that's where the key role of senior leadership comes into play 
the more the senior leadership actually vouches for it the more go ahead you get from your senior leaderships within organizations i think it becomes a lot more easier for the organization to adopt to aiml and start embedding them in each and every function and i believe that it's very much possible to embed it across each and every step of the value chain for any fmcg organization but yes that kind of support probably needs to come from the top Well, absolutely and i fully agree with that and endorse that across any industry sector the leaders have to be walking the talk have to constantly be communicating the need for such change to come through especially when the benefits are uh, are outweighing everything else that is there in front so fully subscribe to that idea and this is a fun fact which i'm going to share about my working experiences with unilever so i think a decade ago and uh, this is specifically the r&d center in bangalore and and this is really to paint the culture of innovation that i have seen at unilever and i really was amazed at that so i was in a company that was dealing with technology that can help virtually simulate the development of products what this means is um, you know imagine you know the problem that we were looking at is the nor soupy noodles so the soupy noodles is a skew of unilever which is you know just like any other noodle but they suggest that it is made in a soupy manner what they were struggling with is that these noodles were breaking far too much than what they wanted it to now they wanted this to be simulated on a computer platform you know using the technology that we were providing and for that you know one of the things which we got stuck with because this involves complex mathematics and uh, physics there are differential equations mathematically that are getting solved using this technology and what you need for solving that is the material properties of the noodles so they said okay so we're going to provide you for that tell us where or which laboratory is going to test it and they went that mile in order to get that uh, material tested and we facilitated that for them and we never really imagined in our lives that we would be testing noodle in terms of its mechanical properties which would be needed for that software to be able to predict why the noodle is breaking and uh, we did cool tests like you know dropping the noodle cake virtually in the computer dropping it from a height of a meter imagining that it's within a package and because of that drop it's breaking and the the hypothesis was during transit such breakages are happening and uh, by far you know this was something which i never imagined that i would be working on noodle product development and you know the amount of intensity that uh, unilever has uh, i still have a very high regard for the company and when parikshit you mentioned Uh, all of what unilever is doing i fully believe that the leadership is fully committed to bringing about you know more and more use cases and pushing the cause of aiml within your own uh, sector and be the leader across the industry so kudos to that that's Thanks super interesting praveen that makes me more confident of my noodle now and also hungry maybe <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay So next we'll go to Colby who has been waiting patiently uh, Colby thanks for your patience please introduce and go ahead with your question Yeah thank you guys very fascinating conversation I recently sold company in January and moved on to the next thing but it's in the data space and it's basically it's data as a service and listening to you talk it's really fascinating when you talked about the HR use case for example right you had this automation it helped enable these um recruiters to to do their job more efficiently so so i i have a bunch of questions the one question i'll leave uh, leave with you is when you implemented that system did those results translate to you being able to invest those resources in hr or 
where within the organization were you then able to, what were the impacts of, of being able to redistribute those resources? And then if you have time, the second question I have is, you know, we're trying to break into these bigger enterprises. It's interesting hearing you talking about top level buy-in. We've been going kind of through developers, but when you're trying to go through, to, try, trying to go and win top level buy-in from the C-suite execs, right? What is your pitch? Is it the grass is greener or is it you guys are going to get pretty screwed if you don't do something quick? Thanks for your question, Colby. So, when, um, and pretty interesting that you raised this point on how it actually helps the HR team, right? Because many, a very significant problem, I think, which is probably unspoken of when it comes to machine learning and even automation per se, is that what do you, what happens to the resources whose work is getting replaced by machines? So it's not that, like, do you let go of them? Do you fire them? Does it lead to a reduction in headcount? So the answer at least more from a Unilever perspective, is an absolute no. We never look at it from a perspective, say that, like, yes, if like if we manage to automate something or we manage to bring more efficiency into the system, uh, that we let, uh, let go of people. So basically what happens is that with some of these advents, what happens is that effort which goes into recruiting, it probably gets reduced by 50, 60 or percent, right? It enables these human resource folks to pick up other problems or some other activity which they can focus on. And in the future, if you need to recruit one more person, you probably might not go ahead and recruit that additional head down and make do with the existing free bandwidth, which is laying within the organization. So you don't let go of folks, but it probably reduces the number of hires, which you probably might do in the future. The second question, which was around the pitch, I think, Colby, that's, that's very easy to answer if you ask me. Because for so when you're taking a pitch to a C-suite exec, the only thing which they would uh, want to understand is that how would it impact the business? Are you going to help me generate more revenue? Are you going to help me uh, cut down on costs? How does that translate? So when you're building any machine on any AIML pitch, these are the two aspects which need to be taken into consideration and obviously against that you would have to uh, specify what is the fixed cost which you, or the capex which you would need for this and what would be your running opex. So basically if you see a net positive ROI and that's something which is built into the business case, uh, the, the business would probably go ahead and say that yes, please go ahead and do a POC. It does not mean that you have full liberty to implement this straight away, but yes, your idea has potential and if you can live up to what you're actually committing to, then let's do a POC or a proof of concept to see if it works or not. If your POC is successful, then, and the business stakeholders also have confidence in your solution, they would go ahead and say that, yes, please scale it out. We are actually seeing business benefit as committed. And I think this is going to be a, a great initiative to take and scale across the organization. So those are the very key aspects which you would want to highlight every single time you take a pitch out. That's insanely helpful. I won't let people get back to the conversation, but one last quick follow-up there. If you had to look at the, I guess, all the industries as a whole, which is it's a difficult question, right? But what would you say are maybe the one, two, or three industries in, in your mind that are most behind on, on this quote-unquote data transformation? Uh, a very difficult question to answer, Colby, as you rightly pointed out. I think manufacturing would be one of them. Uh, but again, with the onset of IoT and smart devices, that's one problem which is getting augmented really quickly. Probably, and again, I might not, may, may be wrong here, 
again i think retail is still way ahead in uh, comparison to fmcg but yeah fmcg probably might be the next one but again a lot of tailwind is there in this particular industry and i think we'll soon uh, catch up with some of the industry leaders like the insurance sector or even the e-commerce or the, uh, or the digitally native companies very soon the gap is reducing if i may put it that way All right. Thanks, Colby, for your question. I would like to now quickly refresh the room again for those who have just joined. We are talking to Parikshit, the head of uh, Data Science Advanced Analytics at Unilever. We are looking into various AIML applications in the FMCG industry and Unilever. So we'll now dive into the second part of our discussion, focusing specially on analytics at uh, Unilever. Before that, if you think that anyone else would benefit from this discussion, do add them to the room by clicking on the plus icon at the bottom of your screen. So let's now get into the aspects of analytics at Unilever. So Parikshit, uh, can you highlight at a very high level some major analytical products being worked at at Unilever right now? So in terms of products too, so if I take up the example of Unilever India, two very key products which are running in the market right now, uh, Jarvis, which is basically our investment optimization engine, and IQ, which is our store level recommendation engine, which basically runs in caters to 15 million odd stores every month when sales will go and visit them. Okay, so I'm fascinated to know more about uh, both of them. But first, maybe starting with IQ. So you mentioned that you are making predictions at a store level or for 15 million stores at a monthly level. So how do you go about the data acquisition aspect for that? Uh, okay, so the data, the CD data or the sales data currently sits in a data lake. So, and that makes life quite easy as compared to pulling out data from any archaic system like BW, etc. Right. So uh, with the data sitting in the data lake, it becomes a lot easier for us to actually uh, leverage the cloud, scale up compute and run these algorithms every month. And if I may add so in a day stay for all the stores. Got it. And uh, when you mention stores, these are the small mom and pop shops yes. uh, that we find, right? Yes, and only so, general trade. Yep. Got it. And these data feeds are coming in from your network of distributors or directly from the stores? So they are coming in from the distributors. So basically, we have these are our own proprietary data. So the second, all of these models are built on secondary sales, which is basically how much a distributor is actually ordering mm-hmm. to Unilever. Got it. And so when you do this at a monthly level, what is the restriction for getting this down to a say a weekly or a daily level? Or is it not the need at all? So the need was not there. I think compute becomes a massive challenge. And obviously, for now, we wanted to keep it at a month level. And I think operationally, it also becomes very difficult because there are say, the final recommendation basically depends on sales wins and their beats, basically. Be- beats is basically their a salesman's schedule of when they actually need to go to a particular store. So that that is not quite fixed because that's something which is not in our hands because the salesmen are not direct Unilever employees. They are employed by our distributors. So the beat information is something which becomes a bit of a challenge. Hence, um, going down to a day or a week level might become a bit of a challenge because you don't know when they would actually have to go visit that particular store. Hence, we kept it at a month level just in order to generalize well. Again, the problem of generalization, like I mentioned. Got Right, right. And so I'm also curious to know what kind of models are we building here and then how do we go about validating them at a, such a massive scale? 
Okay. So we use a deep neural network out here and we just moved from a Bayesian framework to a deep neural network framework very recently. And there are two different sets of models which are there. One which in order, which tries to predict depth, which is basically how do you increase your portfolio in a particular store? And the, the second one is easy to sell, which is basically how do you encourage more repeat orders? So basically, there are two different problems which we are trying to solve here. Two different sets of models which are tuned differently, both deep neural network in engines. And the stores are basically segmented first based on various different geographical uh, characteristics okay. as well as the store characteristics. And then we run it. Or do you want to go into more detail or I'm um, again yeah. a bit cautious of time? No, no, that would be good. Please go ahead. Okay, so basically we first do the segmentation of all the stores because there are like too many stores to run and it's very, and I think it adds more value if you try to segment stores so that uh, the uh, the homogeneity of the particular clusters are there and then we build the classification problem sitting on top of it, a multi-class classification problem which helps us predict which particular SKU will sell in that next month given the various different features which are uh, built into it. A lot of smart feature engineering also goes into this particular problem. And over here, I would also like to emphasize on the need of feature engineering and some of the pre-processing work, which is basically done before taking up any machine learning problem. Just taking the data, running an algorithm on top of it, expecting it to do wonders probably is a bit too much to expect from any algorithm. Proper pre-processing, like building the right set of segments in order to make Learning easier for the model is very important and the sim and a similar construct comes into play when you build the right set of features. I cannot stress enough on the importance of feature engineering and if there are any new young data scientists listening to this, I would also encourage you to probably do some more research on how feature engineering actually helps model performance and I think that's something which is extremely crucial. So yes, we do our, um, build our set of features based on some some business insights and some data trends which are there. And then we run the classification algorithm on top of it. Got it. Completely echo your point there. I think it's no magic that will happen and it requires some intuition and domain understanding as well to come up with some good set of models to deploy. Uh, speaking of deployment, so what is the kind of architecture that that's place as Unilever? Are we look? Are we more into open source, or is it more like some proprietary softwares or uh, infra? So uh, the vision is to move everything to cloud. So that's something which we've already embarked on that journey. Deployment, industrialization happens on clouds at large scale. We are moving away from manual deployment as we speak. We have done it for quite a few projects and that's something which I at least intend to ensure that we have 100% deployment in South Asia through cloud and through the MLOps framework. When it comes to open source versus paid, the larger focus is obviously on open source. There are some very specific use cases where we also design our own algorithms where we would, and those are like uh, just creme de la creme projects, if I may put it in that way, where we want to absolutely retain some of the IP rights which are there. So we, and, and some bit of customization is needed on top of um, the various, uh, on top of the standard XGBoost or the random forest models. We don't develop them from scratch. We take up the current algorithms which are there and we try to modify them uh, to the best, to suit our particular need. But that being said, we also have invested in paid platforms like H2O per se, and it helps us in fast-tracking some of our experiments. So in Unilever, we have a culture of trying to turn around POCs in a month's time or maybe in two months' time. 
So Jarvis is one of the first analytic solutions which we had deployed in Unilever. So I also was a part of the development team when I was actually working in Fractal. So yeah, it's come a full circle now and it's like awesome. come back to me. So basically it's an investment optimization tool which we have. If I may put it, it's similar to FF Triple M solution, but it's more of a Triple M solution on steroids, if I may put it that way. The kind of insights which you get out of it, so it kind of helps us augment some of the traditional problems which are already present in Triple M's. So basically the problems of multicollinearity, which are there where you would need to drop a particular, like if you have two different levers, if I may put it that way, media and price per se. Right. So, and if they are negatively correlated, very strongly saying that whenever you run a media campaign, you would also take the price down for a particular SQ, right? It would be highly correlated and you would initially have to drop one of these levers in your final model if you were using a linear regression model, right? And that doesn't make sense, right? Because in the end, no one can say that like a zero investment in price or a zero investment in media actually would give you the same kind of turnover or uplift that you see right now. Right. So those are the kind of limitations which we were working with when we were working with linear regression. Uh, the first set of models which we built for Jarvis were around Bayesian, Bayesian networks. And it also helped us capture indirect effects. So basically, if I may, uh, if I may put it that way, let me take an example to actually highlight this. Trade promotions in a general trade scenario. So trade promotions in, in general trade, it does not help us in increasing sales, but trade promotions act in generate acts as a lever to increase distribution. So if you look at the direct relation of trade promotions to sales, you might it might not come out to be significant in a traditional linear regression setup. Saying that, yeah, and then the the insight which goes back to the business is saying that please do not invest in trade promotions. I don't think it's too significant, right? Because it does not have a significant impact on sales. That's how you would read the hypothesis of any linear regression model. But what it is, what it actually hides is the fact that it's actually impacting distribution in a very significant manner. In, and it's leading 
leading it to actually be where it is currently. So, and distribution is then directly impacting sales. So, the more distributed your product is, the more chances of you selling a particular product, right? So, that's one hidden aspect which usually gets covered up. So, that's why these were the kind of unlocks which we managed to bring about. And apart from the fact that we're going much more deeper, we also managed to uncover the indirect impact of various different levers on various different measures. So basically, if you look at weighted distribution as a KPI or any mind measure as a KPI, those are something which we can't directly influence, but they are an outcome of some of the impacts which come from these various different levers. So it becomes a lot more easier to understand how the entire network looks like and how does all of these actually impact sales in a direct or an indirect manner. Sounds good. Okay. Parikshit, I want to learn more about how the analytics team is structured at Unilever and what would you say is uh, making uh, working at Unilever unique? Okay. First, how the analytics team is structured. So now there is a global team of analytics which runs, which cuts across geographies. Then there are in-market teams. So basically, like if I talk about South Asia as a cluster, there is an in-market analytics team for South Asia. And then there is an entire global team cutting across all of these markets and clusters which are there. So now, what does the global team do? So basically, in the current setup, they manage services and products. So there are certain products which are running globally. Jarvis, again, being one of them, if I may take it as an example. So their responsibility is to develop and deploy these models for all the different markets which are actually subscribing to that particular service. There, for the team who's working on Jarvis, their only focus would be on Jarvis. But they need to have in-depth knowledge of how such kind of algorithms work and what would be the future roadmap for such products. Then there are also various different services like MLOps. That is becoming a, uni- a, a global construct. It's not just restricted to South Asia anymore. It's like a global construct saying that we will build a hub and spoke model for this with the hub sitting in the central global team. Product projects which are ready for industrialization, all the different market clusters will register them with the global team. There will be a team sitting within the global market who will actually pick up that project, industrialize it, and then keep running it month on month as BAU or hand it back to the market team for local deployment if they want to do so if there are any such legal guidelines etc which are there in place then there's an option to run it locally as well but the industrialization pipeline etc will be built by the global MLOPS team so that's how the global team usually operates and then obviously there is a focus on the entire data as a platform running as well so basically there are global teams who are looking after data who are looking after data science analytics as well as bi reporting and that being said, now if I come to the market cluster teams, so basically if I look at the cluster team, it basically is a team of 10 to 15 odd people and you can consider them to be equivalent of Navy SEALs. So basically this team consists of data scientists, decision scientists, business analysts, uh, data experts and technology partners. So basically these teams are much more closer to the business because they are the business of a particular region per se. So now for our team, we are much more closer to India in the Indian business as compared to maybe the US or even Europe per se, right? We particularly focus on what are the key problems and challenges which the Indian team is facing, the Indian business is facing, and how can we use analytics and data science to actually augment human intelligence out here? What kind of solutions can we build to top off, uh, top on, uh, top up on top of it? 
and, and then run them as it is. So it's much it's more of business understanding, business partnering, and building localized products which are more relevant to India as such, if in such our cases. But then if some of these solutions are good enough, then we hand it back to the global team and ask them to scale it worldwide, wherever it's actually relevant. So if I look at Jarvis or if I look at the ML-based demand forecasting solutions which we built here, those are some examples of products which we built locally and then scaled globally. Sounds awesome. I am sure they must have realized some very good benefits at a higher overall level as well. So what are some of the next upcoming projects for the analytics team at uh, Unilever, say in the immediate future, two, three years? Obviously, I'm building, getting to more granular insights in terms of forecasting is one of the key focuses which I'm also working on. We are also We have also started working with, with IoT data for manufacturing. So smart manufacturing and digital factory analytics is something which I personally am also very keen to pick up on. The D2C, the entire D2C workspace, which is kicking off within Unilever in a large way, is something which will also come into play quite rapidly. And I think one major challenge which I've also taken up for myself is to build a end-to-end connected pipeline of analytics suites running across the entire value chain. Because now what happens is that there are various different analytics solutions running in different parts of the business. So Jarvis is like, if I may give you an example. So Jarvis is a tool which the brand managers and the finance partners refer to when they try to quantify impact of levers. Demand planners have a different ML-based forecasting solution, which is again a black box non-linear model, which is there. But they, they use that model to build their demand forecasts for planning purposes. Similarly, there are the IQ recommendation runs by itself. So there is, and it's pretty obvious because there, are, all of these have been developed across different timestamps across over the years, and they don't talk to each other per se. So it's very important to actually have one streamline of solutions which actually start talking to each other. And I think unlocking that would be one of the biggest unlocks. Um, probably I would actually call out. Sounds super interesting, specifically at the scale of Unilever. So it yes. really must be a ride. <laughs> it's madness. Awesome. Lastly, I'd just like to ask you, so who are some of the analytical personalities that you admire in your field or at a broad level? Haha, <laughs> This is pretty interesting and I'll try to mix it up a bit. So if you talk sure. about inspiration for me, I think my... Has been and how like pretty much all my we do start thinking do this better. So rather than like saying that yes, ninety percent good. I've probably built in onto the Delta which from, from Steve Jobs and I absolutely idle. Um, but it comes to uh, basically from a learning perspective. I think Andrew Ang, I think he's the godfather of machine learning. The first his course on introduction to machine learning on Coursera was it was a mammoth course but i think all of us have pretty much taken an attempt at it i managed to complete it the way he started coursera with the vision of 
probably providing free education to everyone, enabling access to quality education, like at no cost is something which I absolutely admire. I am a strong proponent of saying that education probably should be free for each and everyone because that will also help us in upping the game of where we currently stand. Many people do not get access to quality education because of their financial situations. And I think what Coursera did at that point in time was like absolutely amazing and remarkable. We've seen that translate through in a large fashion with many universities also open sourcing some of their courses, coursework, Stanford, Harvard leading that charge, if I may put it that way. So Andrew Wang was probably one of the stalwarts who actually started Coursera. And I think I absolutely admire him for the work which he does. And even when it comes to picking up anything new. So if I look at MLOps per se, the first thing which I would do is probably go to his course on MLOps, which he started and go through that just in order to understand the theory better. Practical applications, not as not so much through Coursera, but building the right uh, the right foundation, uh, the theoretical foundation and the right understanding for any for any subject matter is something where I think Andrew Ong pretty much thrives, and I really love his courses for that. The second one would be Chris Manning again because of his course on NLP from Stanford, which was again open sourced. I think, what was his name? Two to four, CS2 to 4 end. I think that was, again, the first course which I picked up in NLP. Again, a mammoth course, but I think it grounds the, uh, the fundamentals of NLP within you. I think that's something which you can never forget once uh, you complete that course with all dedication. And I think the third person, not sure if all of you guys are aware of this person or not, is Jeremy Howard. So his courses on fast AI were revolutionary. The way he simplified implementing deep learning. So again, this is less of theory, but more of implementation. It's more of practical deep learning, if I may put it that way. It He made implementation of deep learning seem absolutely easy. The concept of transfer learning in in NLP, which came about, which led to, so, which led to such a big uh, revelation in 2019 with the advent of BERT, etc. I think it came through from his build-up, which he had laid through in some of his courses. And I think um, the work which he's done with FastAI is absolutely remarkable. So this is more from the learning perspective and more from a um, practical perspective. I think I've learned a lot from some of the Kaggle grandmasters. If you look at Marios, who's better known as Casanova in the Kaggle, in the Kaggle setup, or SRK and Rohan, who are more from India, these guys have been revolutionary when it comes to implementing machine learning in any hackathon. And I think participating in hackathon is one of the fastest ways in which you could actually learn something. There awesome. cannot be a single hackathon where you actually participate and you don't learn stuff, right? So that's that's where these guys um, come into play. And when you start looking at their work, you also start understanding the nuances of implementation. Yep, uh, that's pretty much about it. That's a super interesting list, Parikshit, and uh, something to look forward to, especially the imp- point about getting the fundamentals right. I think that's an important point you made for at least the beginners. And uh, yeah. sure, they would get some good reference from your list uh, here. Okay, so with that, let me uh, go to the audience here. So we have Parth first who raised his hand first. So I'll go to him. Parth, welcome. Please go ahead with your question. Uh, thank you, Pranajit. And my question is regarding to with respect to distributors and retailers, like with the advent of D2C and e-commerce, 
probably the sales outlook might be bleak over there so can we come up like i am a student right now and i'm thinking about like how we can help the retailers and distributors so as to say, stay as a channel like a sales channel for unilever or like any company actually company interesting point but so again if you look at d2c the digital penetration in india is still quite low so that's something which will remain and i think i'll give you a, a different example per se which will also help you maybe relate to this so during the covid onset uh, we launched a particular app called shikhar which was a b2b app so basically the because salesmen were not able to go to stores we had this app placed with the the storekeepers and they could place their orders through this particular app now this would ideally mean that the salesman would be cut out of the uh, cut out of the loop right because uh, they won't get their incentives etc but it doesn't happen that way the kind of personal relationship these salesmen build with some of these stores it becomes very it very, becomes very easy for them to sit down and influence them in a way to say that yes please do not use this app so it's very important to have them in the loop as well but so what we picked up at that point in time was saying that we were still giving the salesman in, uh, incentives to actually incentives of sales which were happening in the stores where they were actually going but we also made sure that the usage of the app was going up so basically and this started from pre covid phase where salesmen were actually going and helping the storekeepers place their orders through this particular app and they were also getting their incentives right when when covid actually hit and the salesman could could not actually visit the orders were still flowing in because the usage of the app had gone up people who were still hesitant because they knew that the sales one were coming in it became a part and parcel of their daily lives started looking at the app because there was no other way the salesman could not come to take orders and they started placing the orders through these particular apps the salesman in the initiative for these salesman was still maintained but the digital footprint which we were getting which was more closer the data points which we were collecting were much more closer to time it was not based on when the salesman would go and visit but we got started getting information on when the shopkeeper actually needed a refill of their particular stock to come in so the data enrichment process also happened in the process but yes the rss was still active and we we did not obviously let go of them and they are a very crucial part of our supply chain as you may understand thanks sapat for your question next we have nidhi and uh, nidhi welcome please go ahead with your question hi thank you parikshit my question is regarding cloud platforms and since you mentioned that you are deploying and developing so many tools on cloud and migrating to it do you feel that among the cloud platforms we have today that the leaders you've got gcp azure aws and a host of others there are some clear winners that render render themselves better to the uh, retail industry fmcg or just universally globally or or is there room for more players to come in or is it just a fair playing ground at this point thanks for your question nidhi like you mentioned there are clearly three different three cloud players who are actually dominating the market right now i do not even know of a fourth competitor who is actually coming into this space currently so it's becoming a bit of a like monopolistic kind of a situation between these three players as of now and it also it's also probably because of the kind of investment which it actually takes right and the brand equity which some of these players bring so if you look at a aws or a gcp or or an azure if i look at i talk about these three uh, these uh, trio people are pretty confident that their systems won't fail 
and that kind of confidence is backed by the parent company who's actually backing them so that also plays a very crucial part now if like if i flip the question around and say that you're you're a company running billion dollars of sales and you want to uh, there are solutions which are actually helping run all of these systems putting them all in place would you actually want to go ahead with a cloud provider who actually does not have that kind of a strong backing would you bet billions of dollars on a player who does not have that kind of a backing or would you want to go ahead with someone who actually is known and has already made an impact in the industry. Yeah, yeah, the only I mean just here in the US for example, uh, one of the clients like Walmart is definitely never going to put their data on AWS because of the competition. Yes. So, uh have you faced something like that similarly with uh, Unilever and AWS or even GCP at this point because there's so much conversation going on about them spinning off because of trust and privacy while wanting to maintain the business if you understand what i mean yep yep absolutely clear on that anidhi so on the kind of data which we put on cloud there are strict guidelines which are there in place and when we put confidential and we don't put personal data on on cloud um, there is a separate uh, setup for that none of these three um, platforms actually have any pii data sitting on them currently from unilever and uh, there are there is one there is a separate vendor with whom we actually have a tie up for this and there are separate legal guidelines which have put in place and similarly for all the kind of data which we actually have on cloud there is there are strong legal guidelines which are put in place just in order to mitigate this kind of risk but risk but yeah i understand your point saying that yes a flipkart or a walmart would probably not want to put their data in aws mm-hmm. great thank you Great. Thanks, Anandi, for your question, and uh, so thanks everyone for joining in today. It's been great. So hosting this on Data and AI Club, be sure to follow them as well as the speakers to get to know about more such interesting discussions coming in the future. Thanks, Parikshit, for giving us such rich insights today from your experience. It's really helpful for many of us here and also good to know about the article journey of yourself and also Unilever at a large scale uh, going forward appreciate it yep thanks a lot pranjit for having me here wish you all a very uh, great day ahead and hope you guys are excited for the euro finals as well <laughs> sure sure we'll look forward to that okay thanks everyone